Monday, and that so happens to be the day that I like to talk about monsters. Hello, and welcome to Monster Mondays. I'm Jeff Arbuckle, co-host of the podcast Film Seizure, that you can catch each Wednesday morning at FilmSeizure.com or at a number of podcast providers online. On August 21st, 1998, I stepped up to the box office at my local Greenwood, Indiana Lowe's Theater and purchased a ticket for this week's movie. It was a typical 1998 August afternoon, warm but not blazing hot because back then the earth wasn't trying to kill its inhabitants quite yet. Um, But I wasn't quite sure what I was going to get when the movie began. It didn't take me long before I realized that this was a different animal when it came to comic book movies. What I didn't realize was that Blade would become an extremely important film and prove that Marvel Comics had properties that were viable as box office hits. Now, I grew up in the 80s. That was the decade of Transformers and G.I. Joe and He-Man and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Ghostbusters and Gremlins and slasher movies and so on and so forth. When I wasn't playing with my He-Mans and Humanoids or Transformers, I was walking over to the nearby drugstore and buying comics. And when it came to superheroes, I was a big Spider-Man and Thor fan back then. But honestly, at 75 cents a pop, I'd read just about anything back then. But that said, I didn't really know who Blade was. His creation as a character was before my time. He appeared in issue number 10 of The Tomb of Dracula in 1973. He was created by Marv Wolfman and Gene Collin, uh, both legends in the comics world. And Blade would return to comics in the darker, grittier days of the early 90s. Um, There was something interesting about this African-American half-vampire character who hunted vampires. Um, And it was part of his origin story that he was born in a brothel to a woman who had complications during her labor. And a doctor came to try to, uh, to assist in giving birth to her son. However, that doctor was a vampire named Deacon Frost. And he drained her of her blood, and that passed some vampire qualities over to Blade when he was born. And we'll talk a little bit more about what abilities that gave him when we get into the movie. But the movie was directed by Stephen Norrington, who uh, had only directed one film prior to this, 1994's Death Machines. Uh, But Norrington was best known for being an effects guy. Uh, He worked on creature effects for James Cameron's Aliens in 1986, and then later on Alien 3 as well. Uh, He worked on the robotics for Hardware in 1990, a movie we covered on Film Seizure some years ago. Um, He also did some makeup work on Hellraiser Bloodline in 1996, another movie we covered on on the Film Seizure. Um, He worked on The Witches in 1990. And he even did some uncredited work on both Greystroke, The Legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes, and Gremlins. Of course, Gremlins, another movie we talked about on Film Seizure. So he was a monster creator, and I guess that makes him a pretty good candidate to direct a movie about a sort of vampire who hunts other actual vampires. The real star of Blade, though, is Wesley Snipes. Now, I don't know if people realize how huge of a star Snipes was in the 90s. Uh, He was a legitimate action star, and it turned out uh, he was also big on comic books, and he loved the Blade character. Through force of will and trading on his star status of the era, he was able to help get this movie made. Uh, He really owns this character's portrayal. 
His appreciation for the character helped make a movie that was mostly well-liked, um, and it helped bring the character back into the spotlight and, you know, and on the comic book shelves throughout the late 90s and into the 2000s. So much so that he still uh, was basically able to kind of give his blessing to Marvel as they worked to recast the character with uh, Mahershala Ali taking over the role in the near future. The script comes from David S. Goyer, who had been working in the biz since 1990, having worked on action and horror films, but 1998 would be a turning point in his career. That year, he had uh, both Blade and Dark City released with his name on the scripts. Both films did well with either box office dollars or with critics, uh, Dark City being uh, a huge hit with Roger Ebert in 1998. Um, and he would be able to use that to go on to write a whole hell of a lot of big budget comic films, including the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy. Now we'll come back around to Wesley Snipes, just like we're going to come back around to something that is extremely memorable, uh, for this movie. So don't think for a moment that I'm going to totally ignore the amazing opening action sequence. I'm not, it's just going to be discussed later. Uh, Wesley Snipes Blade uh, was born in 1967 uh, after his mother was bitten and killed by a vampire. And Blade is the scourge of the vampire world. And we see in that opening scene that I'll talk a little bit more about that the run of the mill vampires are all scared of him. He's referred to as the Daywalker. You see, Blade, real name Eric Brooks, um, after his mother was bitten and she gave birth to him, she, you know, that passed to him. Uh, all of the strengths of vampires and none of the weaknesses. So he's got super strength. He's got increased senses. Uh, he's able to uh, regenerate. You get the picture. Um, he still, though, and this is a problem, has a blood thirst. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that also as we kind of continue on here. Several of the people uh, at that blood rave at the beginning of the movie uh, are disciples or connected to a kind of vampire head honcho named Deacon Frost, played by Stephen Dorff. Now, Frost is a badass in his own right, but he's still kind of an upstart, uh, an upstart with revolutionary ideas. He isn't all that interested in the old ways of the balances between vampires and humans. Um, there's kind of this unspoken treaty that keeps this peace. Um, these vampire elders are well connected with uh, politicians and politicians kind of leave them alone. Um, Frost is a little bit more interested in just taking over the vampire leadership and then using that to take over the human race. He really only sees humans as food stock and not something worthy of negotiating or allying with. Um, he warns the elders who try to scold him for how much attention his nightclubs draw to their kind uh, that one day they may just wake up extinct. Now, Blade left one vampire named Quinn at the blood rave burning with the uh, idea that maybe that would send a message back to Frost. Uh, that vampire was taken to the morgue after the police kind of raided the rave and kind of forced Blade to, to run off. Um, but before Blade can return to finish this vampire off, 
he revives and kills one doctor and bites a hematologist named Dr. Karen Jensen. After Quinn escapes, Blade takes pity on Karen as she kind of reminds him of his own mother. Uh, he brings her back to his headquarters where his father figure, Whistler, played by Chris Christopherson, sets up shop and tries uh, to help Karen. And uh, he also makes a lot of Blade's weapons and gives him the stuff that prevents him from going full vampire. She eventually joins in the fight against the vampires. And being a hematologist is quite beneficial to Blade and Whistler. Blade takes a serum that holds off those bloodlust and the other vampiric needs that he has. Um, and she also figures that there's actually a cure to vampirism. And she discovers a way to produce something that will act as a cure. But it's only going to work on people who have been turned into vampires, not people who were born vampires. Blade was born with his abilities, but she still feels pretty confident that she can cure his bloodthirst, um, but it will probably take years. What takes much sooner are familiars and servants of, of Frost Vampire Clan to uh, start to kind of follow and hassle Karen. And Whistler gave her two things before Blade dropped her off at her apartment and then basically sends her on her way. The first was uh, a pepper spray canister that is also just straight garlic. Um, the other is a gun. And he tells her that if she starts to think that she is turning into a vampire, she better use that gun on herself because it's better than the alternative. But Blade reluctantly eventually takes Karen on a hunt, and he tells her that these vampires aren't like the bullshit you see in movies. There are only three ways to really make sure you kill a vampire. A steak, silver, or sunlight. Now, garlic is harmful to them, and garlic, as we have seen throughout the, the movie, or will see throughout the movie, does have the ability, if used properly, to not just be harmful to them, but actually could kill them. Um, but running water and crosses, that's a no-go. He also says the most badass line that was in all the trailers for this movie. He says, there are worse things out tonight than vampires. And Karen replies, like what? And he says, like me. Oh, Wesley Snipes is so badass in this movie. But they discover that one of the more grotesque vampires are hiding out in this place where they're going to figure out what Deacon Frost is up to. And this vampire's name is Pearl. Now, Pearl is this massively obese record keeper that essentially helped Deacon Frost translate an ancient text. Um, and this is kind of from like a vampire Bible um, where there's a ritual where Frost can take 12 pure-blood vampires and awaken a blood god named Lamagra. Uh, turns out that Blade is uh, pretty key in all of this. So instead of trying to kill Blade for interfering in his plans, Frost wants to take him alive. And Quinn uses this opportunity to torture Blade for roasting him and cutting off his arm in the earlier scenes. But uh, Karen and Whistler arrive to help blade escape and pretty much deal more injury to quinn uh quinn's kind of an interesting character because he's like this big tough guy who gets hurt in several ways that would kill other vampires in the movie but for some reason he just keeps he just keeps on trucking it's it's kind of uh it's kind of funny it's it's a quirk to his character but soon frost plan is set into motion his goons capture one of the elders which is the main one played by udo kier and 
Udo Kier is pretty perfect in this movie as a vampire elder. And uh, Frost takes him out to the coast to watch the sunrise. And before it burns this elder to death, Frost has removed his, his fangs with a pair of pliers. And he takes those teeth to the rest of the elders to force them into volunteering for his big master plan. Um, Frost directly antagonizes Blade and says that he knows everything about him. Uh, from why he's the daywalker, he knows about Whistler, all of that stuff. This leads to Frost and his goons being able to attack Blade's hideout. Frost beats the hell out of Whistler uh, before turning him over to Quinn, and he takes off with Karen. When Blade gets back, he finds Whistler bleeding out from several bites. Whistler tells him three things. One, they have Karen. Two, Frost is trying to trigger that vampire apocalypse. And three, Blade is the prophesized key to make it all happen. And if he goes to confront Frost, it'll all be bad news. But Blade refuses not to take on Frost. And he gives Whistler his gun so that he can kill himself and heads off to that final confrontation with Frost. Blade is then taken by surprise in Frost's lair by finding out that Frost's kind of true vampire bride that he always sleeps with, that he always... We kind of saw her a little bit, but it was very important not to show her face because it's none other than Blade's own mother. Uh, he gets overpowered and captured because he's so shocked by this revelation. And in that process of being beaten and restrained, he starts to succumb to the bloodthirst. Um, and... His mother is even the one who ultimately seals him in the sarcophagus-like thing that will drain his blood and start this whole process of summoning the vampire blood god thing. Uh, he's almost completely drained by the time that Karen can get to him. And to restore him, she does allow for him to drink from her because, well, she figured out earlier that she can cure herself um, of vampirism. So... You know, she's she's okay with letting Blade kind of take this from her. Now, Blade regains his strength and first fights off and kills his own mother. But Frost's ritual ends up working and he ends up seemingly almost possessed by that demonic blood god. But Blade, all hopped up on full power, blood power, shows up to take him on. Um, but Frost first decides to throw all of his goons at him. Um Regular old goons, no good. Quinn, oh no, he, he actually gets killed first, in fact. Um, but Frost always has this hot European-looking blonde who always wears white with him. Uh, she goes after Karen for a good old-fashioned babe fight, but Karen hits her in the throat with the uh, garlic pepper spray thing, and that causes her to ultimately explode. But Blade just karates his way through everyone until all that's left is him, his blade, the sword that he always has with him, and Deacon Frost. And Frost and Blade sword fight because, of course, they do. Uh, because, you know, it turns out to be kind of like a big comic book video game boss fight thing, and it's fantastic. The energy is high, the moves are pre precise, uh, the editing is fast, it's all great. Eventually, Blade seemingly gets the upper hand by starting to slice bits off of Frost. But he's already possessed by that blood god, so he just regenerates faster than ever, which leads to one of the more, I remember this being a pretty funny laugh moment in the theater 25 years ago when I saw this movie. Um, 
But when he realizes that he can't just chop, bla- you know, frost up, blade mouths, what the fuck? And it's just, it's fantastic because it's one of those humanizing moments uh, that he does in this movie that is, it, it just leads to some chuckles and kind of makes Blade that much more likable as a character. But, um, but Blade ends up getting the coagulant stuff that Karen made. Um, she figured out a way that, you know, if it add this coagulant stuff to vampire blood, it causes an explosion. Um, so, uh, he basically sticks frost full of like all of the doses that he had left. And this causes frost to turn into a gross bubble monster and explode all over the place. Karen says she still needs to get back to the lab to work on a cure for blade. But he says the war ain't over yet. Um, if she really wants to help, she can make him a better serum that he can use to keep his bloodlust under control. We fade to an epilogue in Moscow where Blade awaits a vampire leading an unsuspecting woman to her doom, not unlike Tracy Lords did in the beginning of the movie. Um, and he's there to interrupt them and the fight continues. But let's talk about the three things that I like about 1998's Blade. First of all, uh, it is interesting seeing this movie again after 25 plus years. It seems so kind of of its time, but it still really holds up and it's still a really important movie. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that uh, before we wrap things up here. But um, the first like, though, has to go to the amazing opening action sequence. It is it so perfectly sets the tone that this isn't going to be what you expect from your average comic book superhero movie. Um, it's got this unmistakable attitude to it. Um, this is the era of raves being shot in movies with close quarter pounding music and bodies bumping and grinding and jumping up and down and into each other. Um, you know, everyone who goes to these things wear leather and the girls all look like suicide girls. Um, and, the one that we focus on directly in the beginning, Tracy Lords, one of the most infamous or lusted after, depending on who you talk to, actresses of the 80s and 90s. Uh, she leads this guy to a meatpacking company's back room where this rave is happening. And before the guy can figure out uh, if all of this is too good to be true, the sprinklers turn on and blood spews from them, revealing everyone at the rave are vampires. Uh, but that's when an uninvited member of the rave shows up with his long leather duster and body armor. Oh yeah, it's Wesley Snipes' blade. And he just massacres the place. Um, he's, he uses his kung fu, he uses his blades, he uses his, his, uh, silver stakes. He uses this boomeranging knife thing that he throws and it spins around the room and then he catches it with his other hand and it just, fucking kills everybody it's great um it's well shot it's energetic it's badass and it's a wonderful way to introduce your hero in the first few minutes of his feature film debut um it's a scene that still after all these years make me think of that first time i laid eyes on this movie and was just completely blown away by this opening second i really do like that there are uh rules that are fairly clearly defined in this movie and explain a in fairly appropriate and natural ways what's at work here we get these uh you know we we get that these aren't your typical vampires that you see in movies you can't do that shit with them and that makes sense it's not accurate to the comic book origins but it makes sense in this world of the film 
But we have clans and orders and various other hierarchies at play here. The primary structure of the vampire race is led by what are called purebloods. These are vampires who were born vampires. Deacon Frost is not a pureblood and is therefore considered uh, basically lower class and not allowed to have power. And, um, you know, it's it kind of creates uh, this other issue that he wasn't turned that all that long ago. Um, so he's looked down upon and frowned upon. Uh, we understand how Blade is what he is. If vampirism is a blood disease, then his mother being bitten would naturally transfer some of that in the blood to him in her womb. Um, it didn't work fully because of the scenario. Um, so, you know, he ends up with all of the positives and none of the negatives. Uh, vampires also have familiars who do their bidding in the human world. Um, they're kind of basically marked like cattle uh, for who they belong to. Um, and then if you do enough good, you end up getting turned. Um, you know, it, also, if you have someone who is bitten and dies, uh, sometimes they don't turn into a vampire before they die. They become like a zombie-like creature. We see that with Karen's ex-boyfriend and the doctor that Quinn killed when he was uh, taken to the morgue before he attacked her. The vampires have a Bible with their own legends and gods and what have you. Yeah, I like that there is this whole world that sits under the surface of, of the movie's um, you know, kind of vampire and anti-hero, anti-vampire hunter. It, it feels like it's adapted from something that has that comic book feel to it. It, you know, it, it's got a larger world and it makes for a different type of adaptation from Batman or Superman as we saw before it. Uh, it gives us, like I said, a bigger world feel and just a different way to bring this stuff into a movie. And you also get a little bit of reasonable science here, too. Karen introduces that coagulant idea that when it's mixed with vampire blood, it's explosive. Um, it's not meant to cure anyone or anything, but she figures that Blade could use it to blow up some vampire heads. Um, it's great and over the top, and it's bloody, and it's wonderful. And all of this just mixes so well with this movie. Thirdly, it's fair to say that this entire cast is just great, uh, especially the further up the cast you go. Donald Logue is a funny, uh, but some, you know, uh, but something of a tough guy character that works as Frost's main muscle as Quinn. Chris Christopherson is perfect as this rankled and grizzled support system for Blade. Um, Steven Dorff is fantastic. I mean, man, that guy had a lot of really good roles in the 90s, but this was the pinnacle for him. Uh, he's just chewing scenery. And, you know, kind of charismatic as Frost. It's kind of funny because the year before this movie came out, he was in a movie called Blood and Wine with Jack Nicholson. And there are moments in this movie where it feels like he's he's kind of doing a little bit of a Jack Nicholson sort of thing. Um, you know, so there it, it, it kind of adds to his scene chewing. Uh, and it's, it's really great. Uh, he's really good in this movie as a bad guy. As a late 90s comic book bad guy, he's, you know, he's pretty good in this. Um, but, come on. This movie, this franchise, this character, and everything the comic book character will achieve, even eventually becoming an Avenger after this movie's release, uh, it all belongs to Wesley Snipes. 
he too had fantastic roles ever since appearing in major league in the late 80s but you know demolition man new jack city spike lee's mo better blues and jungle fever white men can't jump rising sun drop zone passenger 57 the 90s belonged to snipes blade was also his culmination of not just being a star but probably the black action star of the decade he kung fu chops and kicks his way through this movie and is just an utter badass and he has badass lines to boot um he's not all sullen and super serious all the time although most of the time he is he's he's the gritty kind of anti-hero but there are a couple of times in which he flashes this kind of awkward smile that almost feels inhuman but makes him that much more likable much like i said with you know that laugh line when he realizes that he can't kill frost like he normally would any other vampire and he mouths what the fuck it's just it's it, it fits it just works because it's wesley snipes um he's just fantastic in this and seriously it's hard not to hear the name blade whether it's in a movie or in a cartoon or in a comic book uh and not immediately think of wesley snipes there are good comic book character casting for movies and then there's wesley snipes as blade but before i put the wraps on this movie in this episode i do want to talk about how blade shaped the landscape for comic book action films prior to 1998 marvel was massively underrepresented in film they had a hit with the incredible hulk in the 70s and 80s but that was on tv most of their successes outside the medium of the printed page were cartoons those date back to the mid 60s they couldn't even get their flagship character spider-man in a movie Sure, there was that short-lived Amazing Spider-Man TV series, but the limitations on budget and what have you pretty much relegated that series to the dustbin of obscurity pretty quickly. Uh, Captain America had a a couple of TV movies with Reb Brown and then the 1990 film that just, it just didn't work out. Um, DC, Marvel's main competition, was only barely a little bit better. They had their Wonder Woman series in the 70s, and a Flash series in the early 90s that were you know, both on TV, but the characters they were constantly trying to bank on were Superman and Batman. Both had TV series, both had serials in the early days, uh, but they struggled to expand beyond that. Um, they even struggled to have films be successful for fans beyond each of the franchise's first two films in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Superman the movie in 1978 and Batman in 1989 both seemingly could have started a trend with superheroes on the big screen, but it didn't in the way that you might have thought. Sure, after Superman, other pulp characters like Flash Gordon were brought out for a film, and after Batman, there was Dick Tracy, The Shadow, and The Phantom. They all had their shots, but with very mixed results. But Marvel? Not much of anything. In 1986, their obscure Howard the Duck character was given a baffling baffling shot at the theater. Um, And as previously mentioned, they couldn't get Spider-Man off the ground. Um, There was, you know, that Captain America movie I mentioned, but that came from the offshoot of Canon Films. Um, That just wasn't getting anything worthwhile started. and Everything was low budget. Um, of course, the, maybe the most notorious thing was the Fantastic Four film produced by Roger Corman in the mid-90s that was only made, or partially made, to hold on rights for Constantin Films. 
But Blade was a smart move. It's a move that Marvel would continuously go back to the well on for the next 25 years after it. Blade treated the material seriously, and while never trying to pretend to be high art, they knew where to step on the gas and where to make good with the cast. Blade's success made it possible for a slightly bigger post-production and marketing budget for 2000's X-Men. Then, in 2002, came Sam Raimi's Spider-Man film. And after Blade and X-Men were both box office hits, Spider-Man did something I never thought possible. It outgrossed the Star Wars film released in the same year. Spider-Man proved Marvel was here, and they were good at what they were doing. Sure, there were missteps with lackluster Fantastic Four films and the near miss that was Ang Lee's Hulk film, but without Blade in 1998, there's no way they would have taken a chance on Iron Man, another not super well-known character outside of the comic book reader's world, and no way that would have been possible in 2008. And without Iron Man being given a chance, and once again, through perfect casting and handling of the subject matter, it struck box office gold. Then there would be no cinematic Marvel Cinematic Universe if none of that fell into place the way it did. I know there are there is some fatigue with the genre now, but it's often those small, seemingly under-the-radar roots that can lead to massive things at the box office. And another great example that kind of takes the, the Blade route of taking a really lower-tier set of characters and making a massively uh, successful franchise at them is guardians of the galaxy. So blade was the one that proved that Marvel could do whatever they wanted to do if they did it right. And just 10 years after that, iron man proved that again. And here we are now with Marvel being one of the biggest studios and one of the most influential series of films that there ever has been, at least in my lifetime. That wraps up this week's Monster Mondays. You can catch new episodes of Monster Mondays each Monday afternoon at FilmSeizure.com. But don't forget to follow Film Seizure at Facebook, Threads, and Instagram, and subscribe to Film Seizure to get both the Film Seizure podcast and Monster Mondays at your favorite podcast providers. And you can also do that at YouTube as well. You can also check out my website, bmovieenema.com, to read new articles every Friday morning. And hey, since I brought up Sam Raimi just a minute ago, let's take another look at his filmography. Next time, we'll beg the man to drag me to hell. Until next week, stay spooky.